Welcome to Pediatrics Now. Cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today, part two of our allergy episode. Joining me today is Dr. Ed Brooks. He served on the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Expert Panel 4. He's the chief of UT Health San Antonio's Pediatric Immunology and Infectious Diseases Division, and he sees patients at UT Health San Antonio's Adult and Pediatric Allergy Clinic on Medical Drive and at University Hospital. Dr. Brooks, thanks for being here again today. Sure. So let's pick it up where we left off after part one, a question from a pediatric practitioner, one of our listeners, and I think this is a great question. What is the first line of therapy for allergic rhinitis, second, third, and is Montelukast beneficial for non-asthmatics? When and who to start on? Sure. So um, I'll split it up into allergy. So well, let's start with the singular question. The singular works in about half the children. We call them responders and non-responders. And from the adult literature, it, it appears that even fewer adults get benefit from singular. Um, that said, it is is probably one of the most prescribed medications in history, certainly in the field of allergy. And why is that? Well, it's a it's an easy chewable tablet to take and. Um, it has modest effects from a physiologic standpoint, but as I said, if if you're a responder, I've had plenty of parents tell me, oh yeah, it really works. Uh, the others that say um, they're not sure, unfortunately, you just have to stop it and see if their allergies get worse. Um, there's a few side effects to Singular. Uh, people are probably more aware of that with uh, nightmares and things like that, but uh, not too many contraindications. It's a fairly safe medication. What I usually recommend, and that's a reasonable place to start if they respond to it in a child that has uh, allergic rhinitis. Um, the most effective medication, of course, are the intranasal steroid medications, and they're all effective. I don't have a favorite uh, brand or type of nasal steroid. Um, a lot of people will start children on antihistamines and I think that's fine as well. They have mild rhinitis and that controls it. I don't really like, and particularly in young children, and we talked a little bit about this in the previous podcast, uh, under two years of age, most of their runny noses are respiratory infections, not allergies. The earliest we mm -hmm. tend to see true allergic rhinitis is around two years of age. So if they're under a year and having a lot of runny noses, um, I really recommend not using antihistamines. And part of the reason is some of the studies primarily focus on otitis media and adjunct therapies such as antihistamines or decongestants. Um, in some of those studies, some of the children actually had a persistent serous media, and that increased the risk for more infections. And why is that? Well, antihistamines tend to dry up the secretions and in an infectious process, you want the secretions to drain. And so you don't want to keep the ear fluid from draining down the eustachian tube, nor the sinuses. And that's a principle I've carried over in virtually all of my treatment for allergic rhinitis, adults and children, in that I like to use antihistamines as needed. What they're effective for is an itching and sneezing symptoms. The congestion, they're really not very effective. Singular is actually a little bit better on the congestion side. So if somebody has primarily congestion as their symptom, singular is a reasonable first step. Again, the nasal steroids cover all of the above. So they're very effective. The one trick that I use with intranasal steroids is using higher doses intermittently when their symptoms are worse. Such as maybe you know, most of the prescriptions are one or twice a day, I think FDA approval. 
I'll recommend using it multiple times a day, three or four times a day when their symptoms are bad, do that temporarily. And then when their symptoms are improved, they can go back to once a, once a day is fine for a sort of a preventive approach. But during their peak season, a lot of patients won't be controlled on that alone. And they can also take antihistamines and everything during the season. Decongestants are also affected in people that have persistent congestion. Again, I don't like to use them chronically and they do have side effects of adrenergic symptoms such as jitteriness, increased heart rate, uh, reduced sleep. So you have to be careful in how you prescribe those. Can also cause some hypertension, more of a problem in the adult population. And how would you define chronically? How how long is too long to take these? Well, daily, and that's what I mean by chronically. A lot of patients that I see that have been referred here take Zyrtec or some other, or Cetirazine or some other antihistamine every day. They were told to take it chronically. And the thing is, antihistamines don't really have much of a preventive effect. They're good for treatment of those symptoms of the itching and sneezing. Mm -hmm. They're great for things like hives. But if you have to take them every day to, to keep control, again, if you stop them, all the symptoms come back pretty quickly. So it's not really a preventive therapy. The nasal steroids have a long-term physiologic half-life, if you will, in the sense that once you've controlled the inflammation, they can, if they stop their nasal steroids, it may take a while for the symptoms to come back. They will come back, but over a longer period. So that's a really a better way to manage symptoms long-term and using intermittent antihistamines with flare-ups. Singular should be used on a long-term. The problem is the peak effect of singular is about three weeks. You do get some immediate benefit. But when you're trying to determine if they're really benefiting from it, it's a little tricky. And in your our last episode, when you talked about the use of nasal steroids, that's what my son has been doing to get through the pollen allergies. And it was a game changer. It helped so much. Oh, so thank you for that advice. And I know you're joining us from your clinic today. Has it been packed during the pollen season and the other allergens it, have been... It, it, it's always packed here, but yes, yeah. <laughs> the springtime was particularly um, busy. Here are some other questions. Other than, and this is also from a pediatric practitioner, and this is one of our listeners from an urgent care center. Other than OTC allergy meds and environmental changes for treatment and prevention of allergies, are there other treatment options we can do in the primary care setting? And what is the latest regarding sublingual allergy drops for which allergens? Yeah, I mean, environmental measures actually is part of the first steps. And depending on their testing, and I think so one of the questions with the you know role of testing in the primary care setting. And so mm -hmm. I, I think the in vitro test is good. Um, it's tricky to interpret. And I'll tell everyone, your history wins. In other words, if a child puts their face in a cat fur and sneezes, they're cat allergic. I don't care what the mm -hmm. testing says. Um, so the seasonal nature of it, a lot of people say, oh, I have seasonal allergies. My first question is what season? I think that's just a euphemism for I get runny nose off and on. Most people can't really pinpoint mm -hmm. it. And again, distinguishing between respiratory infections and allergies is abysmal. Um, in general, it's hard for me to tell the difference. Someone has frequent respiratory infections like children, young children. Um, but the environmental measures for the, the recent guidelines have revised this. We reviewed all the literature on this. And, and what the recommendations are, if you've got a pest allergy like cockroach or mouse, then doing universal pest control is the best option. And that will be effective for their allergies. Certainly, if they got pet allergies and they removed the pet, which I never tell anyone to do because nobody wants to get rid of their pet, um, that would be so effective. Um, what we tell them with pet allergies, well, at a minimum, try to keep them out of their bed so they don't sleep with them at night. Um, that mm -hmm. said, it's very difficult to control allergies if you've got a bad pet allergy and you have a pet sleeping with you or in the house. Um, right. But the other 
treatments. We have treatments for dust mite in the sense that we use the dust covers for the mattress and pillow, the encasements, and the recommendation to use a HEPA filter on your vacuum cleaner. Most vacuum cleaners, you can buy HEPA filters. You don't usually have to buy a new vacuum cleaner. And those help because when you vacuum, it just kicks it up in the air because the particles are, are too small to be caught by the typical filters and vacuum cleaners. Um, but the caveat is that isolated management of just dust mite or mold allergy or something like that doesn't seem to be as effective. So we recommend comprehensive management. In other words, reducing the humidity in the house and treating mold growth. You don't have standing water in plants that, that produce uh, mold spores. Do the pest management as well as the dust mite management. So the sort of universal approach seems to be in the research study seem to be the most effective rather than say, well, you have a dust mite allergy, so let's just do that. That didn't seem to be as effective in the research projects. As far as uh, sublingual therapy, there are three new tablets, sublingual tablets, that's just a prescription. Um, and, but they only have them for ragweed, grass, and dust mite. Ragweed and grass are approved for down to five years of age, and the uh, dust mite is approved for 12 and older. Still trying to get them to approve it for young kids because dust mite allergy is the most common allergy in young children. One of the caveats with those tablets, though, is I've noticed in the approval process, because they are pricey that require prior approval, uh, I think most of the insurance companies want it prescribed by an allergist or ENT or someone who is a professional um, in that regard. Um, the allergy drops, sort of those have been around for 100 years, and they're also effective. One has to use a lot higher dose than what I might use in a shot, um, and the insurance companies will not pay for it. So that's a cash business only. So, um, there, but it is effective. The other limitation is you really can't do more than one to two allergens because of the volume and the you know local reactions some people get in their mouth and lip. They'll get some burning and itching and tingling if they're on their drops. Um, and just the volume, because like I said, the, the dosing is much higher. Um, and there's, it's hard to make it to know the right dosing from the typical allergen extracts that we can get. And so there you have to look at all the research and because most of the research is done in specific allergen units, et cetera, that is not standardized to the vials that we have, the non-standardized extracts. So it's a little tricky in dosing for the sublingual allergy drops. Um, there are these over-the-counter drops and Basically, it's just medications. I, I picked one up, so I thought, well, how could they possibly sell an allergen extract at HEB? And mm -hmm. it doesn't have any allergen in it. I think it was their mountain cedar drops. And it had an, it's like an over-the-counter allergy medication and antihistamine and a couple of other things. So those, those are not real allergy drops, so to speak. So stay clear of those? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't promote it. Some of my patients come in and so say they use them. They say that really works. I say, okay, <laughs> that's <laughs> fine. If, if, you know, whatever works for you. But it is, it's just like taking antihistamines and decongestants. Mm -hmm. So refer out though for allergy drops because it can get tricky with the dosing. Well, it, it, and again, it's tricky with the dosing and most you know allergists can offer it, but I haven't had anybody take me up on my offer because they'd have to pay cash. And, and, and because I use large volumes, Sorry. the price, the price, the extracts are kind of expensive. Some of these places, I won't name names, but they do these allergy drops. And it's basically home homeopathic doses. It's not high enough doses to actually get an immune response. Mm -hmm. So let's look at a case, a 15-year-old boy, Alexander. Okay, it's my son. We heard him at the beginning of part one talking about his symptoms. He developed pollen allergies around age four. 
Since then, he's pretty miserable each spring in Texas, but taking Zyrtec daily and staying indoors um, and using Flonase to help manage symptoms, is this something he has to live with or is this a case for sublingual drops? What do you recommend? And again, there's that out-of-pocket fee, it sounds yeah. like. Well, I did sublingual drops in my son and it cured mm -hmm. his mountain cedar allergy. I was actually surprised because yeah. I was guessing at the dosing. There's not really a, a good guide for that. Uh, and there's another rule in, in some of our, particularly when we do shots, our guidelines will say highest dose tolerated. In other words, they haven't worked out exactly what the right dose is other than high doses necessary. This is true for things like mold allergy and dog and cockroach where there really isn't good, good evidence. So I just started off on a, one drop and then worked my way up. But um, for most kids, and the, the sublingual tablets are not going to cover the springtime allergies because those are most likely going to be trees. The trees start pollinating and, well, we around here we get them in the winter, December and January is mount cedar season. And then we get a little break and then the other trees start in late February, early March. and the grasses aren't that strong until the, the weather warms up and the weeds start coming up when the weather warms up. So it's mostly tree pollen allergies. You know, um, the best treatment I would recommend if it's just the tree and you know, the drops may work if it's just like one major tree like oak allergy and you can treat that with the drops. Um, but we've had great success with uh, skit or subcutaneous immunotherapy traditional allergy shots. The kids seem to respond very quickly and very completely. We've had great success. And usually a two-year regimen is what's recommended for children, what I recommend for children. And they that's the only place where we have good scientific evidence. They did a study of kids with grass allergy in Europe, did a two-year regimen. And 13 years later, they found that the kids, very few of them were back on medication. So it is does have some durability to it. No, no allergy shot series is guaranteed to be lifelong. Um, but if you're if you're good for a few decades without the shots, I think that's pretty good. And you may need to go back and get it done again. Some people don't fully respond. And if you stop it, their therapy, they start to have symptoms again within a year. So some people just stay on shots, you know, monthly uh, maintenance shot for for some time. And that that's more often in our older population. Yes, that's what happened to my father. He was he was fine when he was taking the shots. But when he stopped, the allergies came back. Yeah, and that oak. seems to be a, it, it. Again, the scientific evidence is not great, but it seems. The, the higher the dose that one uses in the allergy shots, the more durable the response is. And unfortunately, you know, historically, a lot of allergists have kept the doses relatively low and for fear of reactions primarily and safety. But, and you're good while you're on those lower doses, but if you stop it, the, the symptoms do tend, tend to return more quickly. And in the case of Alexander, who again is 15, when would you recommend he start getting the shots? Tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> now, for two years, weekly? Uh, no, weekly, we have a build-up schedule, and every allergy office has a slightly different schedule, but we build up on a weekly injection, and then after 17 injections, so you do 17 weeks, or we can do what we call a cluster, where you get multiple shots each visit. You can build it up in eight weeks, and usually by that, at the end of the build-up period, most people are experiencing some improvement. And then we go to maintenance, which is once a month. So that's that once a month for the next two years that we recommend. And those can be administered at, at home or do they always have to come in for that? For our clinic, we only do it in the clinic. Uh, and part of that reason is we do use high dose and the, the chance of having reactions is, is greater. And mm. uh, that's our guidelines recommend in office shots, again, for safe, primarily for safety. Um, there are some that offer home shots. In general, those tend to be, you have to give the shot more frequently because the dose is very small, again, for safety reasons. 
Um, I know some regimen where they're giving three shots a week for six months. But if you're giving it to yourself and, and it's not a big deal, you know, I think that's a reasonable approach. You can get to the same level of dosing, but just more frequent shots with lower doses. What's your approach for solid food introduction, eggs, peanuts, et cetera, in infants with eczema? And does the infant need allergy testing, yes or no? It's a good question because uh, some eczema is induced by food allergens. The most common, of course, is going to be dairy or cow's milk because mm -hmm. as an infant, if they develop eczema early on, then the only thing they're exposed to is the cow's milk formula. Now, some kids develop eczema while they're breastfeeding, and I, it's, it's met with limited success restricting the maternal diet of dairy products or other foods that might be stimulating the eczema. So in that context, the allergy testing may be beneficial. The downside is, and we do it, the downside is eczema is a type four mediated reaction. It's really not driven by IgE. The testing is IgE. So often with eczema or the GI food allergies, the testing is not very effective not very uh, sensitive. We do it because sometimes it is, you can you can get IgE production along with the T cell activation. So we do the testing and then we will restrict the diet as it, I often tell parents, you know, let's do the experiment, get them off any cow's milk based product. If they tolerate soy or it depends if they're an infant, they have to go on a formula and the hypoallergenic formula, nutramogen and alimentum can be effective and actually help them grow out of the allergy itself because it's all uh, broken down proteins or peptides that seem to be more tolerizing than the whole protein. If they don't tolerate that, and some kids who are really sensitive to dairy have to go on a hypoallergenic or amino acid-based formula. Um, so the, the trials of elimination and then reintroduction of, of the suspected food allergen is really the best way to determine if a child really has eczema that's stimulated by a food allergen. Let's say they we test them, they come up negative, and there's no obvious indication. Because often parents will say, Oh yeah, I noticed when I when I you know gave him whole milk, his eczema really flared up. Some a lot of times you don't get that history, and so you just have to do an elimination. I tell him to do an elimination over a month. Again, this is a delayed allergy, so it doesn't show up like in like hives that show up immediately. Those are easy. So these are more difficult. So I tell them to get off all dairy for a month, and then reintroduce their regular diet at the end of that period and write down how their symptoms are at the end of the elimination and the end of, end of the another month of reintroduction to see if they notice any flare-up of their symptoms. And which babies should be referred to an allergist? Um, I think the ones that have really severe, poorly controlled eczema. Um, again, the pediatricians, at different levels, we'll, we'll do some testing and maybe do some elimination of foods. So it, it's kind of a, a very, a, you know, some come with no interventions and others come with some interventions. Um, so it really depends on at what point um, they feel like they need a little assistance in determining exactly what's driving the uh, eczema. And there's some new medication mm -hmm. for eczema. Obviously, we use topical steroids. And um, before Dupixent, which is a monoclonal antibody blocking the allergic response, um, we use cyclosporin, and that was more, more in the older kids and adults, and that was pretty effective. Um, but certainly all these folks need to be allergy tested to see if we can determine some allergen that may be stimulating the eczema. So it's, it's one of those yes, no answers. I don't expect when I test them that we're going to get a positive response. It's certainly the negative predictive value is terrible. It doesn't mean you're not allergic in that context. 
if you have hives, when you drink milk or eat peanuts, usually that's easier because a parent will walk in and say, yeah, every time they drink milk, they vomit and they get hives. You know that's an immediate hypersensitivity and the testing is usually pretty accurate at detecting those kids. As far as um, guidelines for introduction of allergenic foods in infants with eczema, um, the recommendations are to introduce everything along with all the other solid foods at the three to four month old age to begin introduction of those foods. Don't hold off. And this is sort of strengthened by the LEAP study in which they took exactly those kinds of children with eczema who tested positive for peanut allergen, and they put one group of them on an elimination diet for peanuts. And the other group, they had them eat bamba cookies, which are teething cookies, which have a little bit of peanut protein in them. And it was the kids that ate the peanut cookies that had less allergy two years later when they challenged them with nuts. So mm -hmm. we, you, my old saying is you have to eat your enemies. Eventually, you mm -hmm. have to consume those foods, and the desensitization protocols we use teach us that you start off on extremely low doses, I mean, microscopic doses. I'll dilute peanut butter to a 1 to 10,000 and then challenge them progressively to see if they have any reactions. And in, in, in the case of eczema, you don't get any immediate reactions, so the idea is that you introduce very tiny quantities. And having like things like eggs and milk and baked products seems to make them less allergenic and more tolerant. So that again will help them grow out of their food allergy. For infants in general, what should we be saying to our parents and caregivers who are asking about the introduction of high allergenic foods? Yeah, all, same as all the other foods between three to four months, you know, when you start introducing solids, Go ahead and don't don't discriminate against the allergenic foods because feeding them early seems like you know there's the studies are all over the place but these are the recommendations that they finally came down on and the best way to build tolerance to food allergens is actually eat them and so I coach folks and what I would do like an oral challenge if I think someone's allergic to something I start and I'll rub it on their lip wait about 20 minutes for an immediate reaction. This is for kids that have urticaria, anaphylaxis, and then give them a small bite. And so in the case of eczema, I would recommend just tiny amounts, introduce tiny amounts of the food on a daily basis. So regular, everyday, tiny amounts is the best way to build up tolerance to food allergens. And I remember with my older kids, I. Um, didn't know we weren't supposed to be, you know, the advice at the time was not to give them peanut butter. And I had already been doing that. And someone had told me at a play date <laughs> for my toddler daughter, um, and they don't have peanut allergies. But of course, as we all know, that's been flipped to where it's a good idea to introduce peanuts, like you're saying, along yeah, with the messaging. The messaging in the past has gotten mixed up, unfortunately, and it's probably the fault of us, the allergists. You know, because avoidance was a surefire way of, you know, avoiding and have not having reactions. And so it was recommended in high risk children that had eczema or previous um, type one allergic reaction hives, et cetera. Of course, we would eliminate for them. People took that as well. Maybe if you delay the introduction of these highly allergenic foods, maybe the other children also who don't have a high risk of developing allergic disease, well, maybe that might be beneficial. And it turned out it was just the opposite. By not introducing these foods early on, I think we have seen a higher rise of food allergy in children. Let's move on to questions about antibiotic allergy. Huh? Who should um, let's move on to uh, questions about antibiotic allergies. Mm -hmm. Here's the question from a pediatric practitioner. Who should we be testing for amoxicillin allergy? Okay. Um, well, testing for amoxicillin, penicillin allergies is not 
trivial. I mean, there's special reagents and you have to prepare the testing reagents ahead of time. And so we test with something called with penicillin, PEN-G, which captures the beta-lactamarine, which is a minor determinant, we say. Then there's a commercial product called Prepen that contains the major um, determinant. It's actually um, a breakdown product of penicillin, PEN-G. And we test for, and we put amoxicillin because amoxicillin has unique side chains from penicillin. And we do skin testing. The in vitro testing that's offered at some of the um, laboratory companies really isn't very good. Um, and so we don't usually recommend doing that. I don't really do it. I used to because I didn't have the skin testing available, but now this new reagent is commercially available. So it's it's it has a predict positive predictive value of about greater than 95% and a good negative predictive value when we do the testing. So if someone comes in with anaphylaxis, um, we definitely want to do that testing. And that's usually followed as a skin prick test. And then we follow it with an intradermal test for those same reagents because you inject a bit more. Um, and if you make it through that and it's negative, then you go to an oral challenge. Um, and I usually start with a one-tenth dose unless they have other comorbidities and they're fragile. I might go for the lower dose because I'm I don't want to give them anaphylaxis. So we do the testing and challenge not to prove they are allergic. We we want to see that they're not allergic. Um, mm -hmm. We want to rule it out and delabel that label from their uh, medical record. Um, if they have a convincing history of anaphylaxis and it was pretty clear that it was moxicillin or penicillin i usually don't even do the testing at that point if they need to get those antibiotics we can do a desensitization we have a delabeling program where we have a survey where we stratify into low risk and high medium and high risk and each of the low risk patients usually for instance, they have a stomach ache with penicillin. It doesn't really sound like mm -hmm. a true allergy. Sometimes we go straight to an oral challenge. You don't even need to do the testing because it's a low risk procedure. If they have anaphylaxis, of course, that's a high risk situation. And you may go directly to desensitization. If the history is equivocal or it happened 30 years ago, um, you might still go to do a challenge, see if they're still allergic to it. 90, greater than 95% in studies that follow these procedures and do the testing don't continue to have a true penicillin or amoxicillin allergy. And this pediatric practitioner listener says, what can we do with patients who have an unconvincing history of allergy to penicillins? Yeah, that those may fall into the low risk category and then they could go straight to an oral challenge. And again, my that I do, I just give them one tenth of what a target dose would be. So let's say you're going to give them 250 milligrams of amoxicillin. You just give them 25, a tiny dose and wait 30 minutes to see if they have any immediate reactions. Because really the, the, the biggest risk everyone's concerned about is anaphylaxis. If they get hives, you can treat them with Benadryl. They get a stomachache. Um, it could be, you know, hypersensitivity, but it's not life-threatening. So that's why that's why we have these labels that we don't want to give it to them if they're going to have um, anaphylaxis. But sometimes, most of the time, I, think, I haven't had a positive yet. Well, because I stratify them if they're if it's pretty convincing history, and it happened a few years ago, um, I'm probably not going to do the uh, testing and challenge. I'm probably going to just say, listen, if you have to be on penicillin, we'll do a desensitization protocol. How do you handle beta lactamase inhibitor, unasin, zosin allergies, and cross-reactivity? Right. Well, they're pretty rare. Um, there's, and, they're, and they do cross-react amongst in those two medications. There's a fifth I forget 
fifth or sixth one more recently that is structurally very different from the unison and zosin. So if they truly have the beta-lactamase inhibitor allergy, then um, you can use this, uh, and, I, and I don't remember the name, but again, these are pretty rare allergies and there's not a whole lot of literature on this, and they, but, they, but they've been reported. It's more likely that they're allergic to the uh, penicillin or the cephalosporin. How about in children who have been told they are allergic to penicillin in the past? How old should they be to test for true allergy? And what would be an appropriate time to wait to test after the allergic reaction? Yeah, we have a general rule of thumb that we like to wait at least six weeks after an allergic reaction for any kind of reaction. They show up in the ER with anaphylaxis. We'll wait six to eight weeks before we test them. And the theory is that the IgE gets used up in the reaction. That's what I say. I don't know if that's really true, but it appears to be a period um, of time where the testing may come out negative. So we want to maximize the opportunity to identify it. So it doesn't do any good to do it in the ER. It may, and you may still get a positive reaction. I'm not saying not to if you need to, but uh, uh, we like to wait. And what would be the best test to order, or are you saying the patient should see an allergist at that point? I think, about I think, that, I think the uh, in vitro testing is pretty good. Is a really good, um, more positive predictive value because it's less sensitive. The skin test, the problem with it is we can get a lot of false positives you know, at our cutoff levels. You know, all the problems occur at the sort of cutoff level. If you get a huge reaction on a skin test or on an in vitro test, you can have a lot of confidence that that's probably real. Um, the way we interpret the testing is the larger the reaction, the more likely it is they have a true allergy to that. You can be sensitized to something, but not have true allergy yet. In other words, you can have positive tests for peanuts but the child eats peanut butter without reactions. They're not allergic by definition. The oral challenge is the gold standard. But the testing you have to kind of interpret in that context. There's some standardized cutoff levels for food allergens because these studies are relatively straightforward. You test them and you do an oral challenge and either they react or they don't react. And so for egg, it's in the range of, well, depending on the age group, uh, two to five, on the the KU per uh, liter, you know, units for the for the in vitro testing, and for things like peanuts and wheat, it's much higher. It's like 15 before you have a 95% confidence that that's a true allergy. Um, the history again wins. If you eat a peanut and have a reaction, they're allergic to peanuts, and you can have negative testing. Yet on an oral challenge, if it's positive. And I've seen I've seen children that had a peanut allergen level greater than 100 off the scale for the device and yet ate peanut butter every day. So they were maintaining their tolerance probably by eating peanut butter. So I told them, oh, please keep eating peanut butter <laughs> mm -hmm. because they were more likely to develop the true allergy if they stop eating peanut butter. Kind of turns everything upside down, this new information. Right. But I know I'm a big, if the pediatricians want to order those in vitro tests, I think they can, you know, you have to be able to interpret them. They're very sensitive. You know, a lot of them have a, you know, negative or limited detection of 0 0.01, or excuse me, 0.1. And the traditional RAS level is 0.35. These are all arbitrary numbers. They really don't mean anything because in the context of true allergy, the studies have really not been done well to prove that at a certain level and you do a allergen challenge like an intranasal challenge with pollen and you can pick up cutoff levels. So um, a lot of these very low levels really are not meaningful. Uh, if you get a really high level, you can probably hang your hat on that, particularly if it correlates. So I, I think testing should be done in the context of validating the history. If they have perennial allergy, 
every morning they wake up and they sneeze and they itch. That sounds like dust mite. You do the test, it comes up dust mite. I'd feel pretty comfortable with that. If you tell me your child only has symptoms in March and April, and I do a test and I find some positivity for oak and all the other trees that pollinate in the springtime, I'm going to have confidence in that. On the other hand, if you if someone tells you, oh, I'm I'm fine in the spring, but I'm really sick in the fall and their ragweed is negative and the weed, the grasses are negative, but the trees are positive. I'm going to scratch my head about that. Because it doesn't fit with the history. Now, some people are better historians than others. And that's the art of medicine to get that good history. There's a lot of what we call recall bias. Like you mm -hmm. ask them today, what are your symptoms year, you know, through the different seasons? And some people, <laughs> we don't have much season in Texas, right? It's just sort of one big, you know, it gets cold and hot and rainy and dry. And um, usually I can pick up mountain cedar. That's easier because it's over the holidays. So I said, well, how are you over the holidays? And they say, oh yeah, they're miserable. They're sneezing and itching all the time. It's like, okay, that's probably mountain cedar. Not much else is pollinated at that time. And mold is the hardest because it's around all the time. And mm -hmm. my favorite response when people say, I think I have mold allergy. And I'll say, well, why is that? And they say, well, every time my allergies are bad, I check the, you know, the news and it tells me the mold counts are high. And I says, what, what about when your allergies are fine? Do you ever check the news? Answer is usually no. But the and the other answer is mold's always high. It comes and goes all mm -hmm. year round. It's very difficult to pick out. You know, a few days after it rains, you get symptoms. And there are some classic symptoms of mold allergy. You go into a moldy basement, which we don't have many basements, or closet, and you sneeze. You know, that could be a, a sign of mold allergy. But that's the hardest one. But the pollens have a, have a pretty specific season and can give you a good clue. As a, animals, I love. You, you know, we. I tell people to do the cat or dog challenge. Just put your face in a dog fur, a friendly dog, and see. If right. It's that's that's better than the allergy testing. Let's move on to questions on hives. This pediatrician is asking: Do you have any updates on the treatment of hives, and when should a pediatrician suggest allergy testing? Well, this is a more complex topic than what the question suggests, but. If it appears to be allergic hives, um, again, ate a peanut, got hives. That's easy. It's all based on the history. But the child plays outdoors, and every time they come in, they get hives. Um, could be fire ant. Fire ants, I say, is the most occult cause of anaphylaxis in hives because often you don't even notice you got stung by a fire ant. And so treatment, antihistamines work great. Now, in the context of chronic urticaria, when they have hives every single day, it's, un, it's less likely to be an allergic cause. And so our rule of thumb, again, is if they have hives every day for six to eight weeks and more, then it's unlikely to be an allergen and more likely to be chronic urticaria, which is more of an autoimmune condition. Again, the treatment's the same. We don't uh, try to suppress the immune reaction unless they're very severe, but I use a lot of antihistamines and um, for children, and depending on their size, you know, they may go up to two Zyrtec twice a day. I like, Zyr I like cetirizine for this. It seems to be pretty effective in urticaria, but the other antihistamines can also be effective and then using uh, Benadryl or hydroxyzine for breakthrough. So they tolerate a lot of antihistamines. I don't like when they're taking Benadryl during school because they fall asleep and it re it's really disruptive. So I like to get them on the non-sedating antihistamines. Beyond that, uh, Montelukast can be effective for urticaria and uh, H2 blockers like Pomotidine has some, some place in that and again, those are medications we, we tend to start prescribing for folks who have chronic urticaria. And steroids, of course, always work. I, I really hate using them um, unless, unless I really have to. Um, and there, you know, it's a, like I said, it's a whole other podcast to talk about chronic urticaria and its causes. Do you hate to use the steroids because it lowers our immune system and 
possible long-term effects, or can you tell us a little more about that? Oh, well, I mean, the long-term effects of systemic steroids are legend, you know, you know osteoporosis right. and increased risk of fractures. Um, some people get cataracts, high blood pressure, high glucose, all those things. It increases the appetite and so can be a cause of uh, over, be, uh, children being overweight if they're chronically on steroids. Um, because I do rheumatology and pediatrics, I use a lot of steroids. So I'm not shy about using steroids in the right setting, but in the setting where you really don't have to, I, I prefer to avoid them. And I like to try to treat just simple urticaria with uh, antihistamines. And you you did mention um, that uh, pediatric arthritis is on the rise. Do you want to mention something about that? And is, is there any idea why? that's happening? I, I think we should save that for another time. <laughs> whole other topic. Okay. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast on rheumatology. Okay, okay down the road. So, um, and I, so now for Dr. Brooks Soapbox, I know you have a quote <laughs> from you and I think it's really interesting. So tell yeah. us about soap. Well, um, I'll, I'll, give a preamble in that why is there such a rise in allergic disease over the last three or four decades? And the most prominent theory has been what they call the hygiene hypothesis. And the hygiene hypothesis basically states that we're too clean. And the evidence is that when they look at the microbiome of people with allergic disease, they have less diversity of their microbiome. So a lot of people, unfortunately, through the um, years of great infections, you know, the great public health successes with sanitation, you know, having a good sanitation system. And we, especially Americans, became squeaky clean. You know, we were spritzing... Okay antibacterial sprays everywhere and preventing our children from getting these bad infections. And I think, again, we've probably gone overboard with it. Well, there's been research going on for some time, particularly with some of the genomic research that's pointed to genes associated with barrier function. So what's that mean? Those are the genes that sort of hold the tight junctions in the skin. and mm -hmm. the first part of the immune system is we don't let the bugs in, right? We, we have skin and epithelium that protects us and mucus that sweeps it away. And so that's a big part of the physical immune system. But what this research is pointing to is there are polymorphisms or mutations in some of the barrier function genes. The most famous that sort of kicked this off was filaggrin. So a condition called ichthyosis vulgaris, known to have a homozygous filaggrin mutation. Well, they noticed that people with heterozygous mutations tended to have severe eczema. And so this sort of kicked off a lot of research that's now pointing to the barrier function is critical in development of asthma, allergic disease, allergic rhinitis, allergic food allergies, et cetera. Where soap comes in, is that some more research has shown the injurious effect of detergents, simple detergents, and they are everywhere. And so we know in children with eczema in particular, they become very sensitive to soaps and detergents. And, you know, folks always say, oh, I changed all my detergents, et cetera. I think the, the shorter answer is stop using so much. I tell parents, mm -hmm. don't use strong detergents on your floors. If you've got crawling babies that are on the floor, they're going to get, and everything goes in their mouth. And so mm -hmm. some recent, this was a big session at the recent allergy meeting, but some recent research that suggests that in very low concentrations, some of these deter dishwashing detergent can cause epithelial injury and increase the permeability and reduce the barrier function. And, and how does that enhance allergy? Well, if the protein molecules can get into the system more easily through the gastric epithelium, the skin, 
then the proteins are intact and are more likely to induce an allergic response. And this has been shown in kids with uh, eczema and sensitization to food allergens. The theory that kids actually have exposure to, well, they've never had peanuts, but they're peanut allergic, for instance. Well, they get exposed to it through the skin is the thinking. And that the old theory that, it, well, if you just avoid that food, they eventually grow out of it doesn't make any sense. We now understand they probably were getting exposed to tiny amounts through their skin, incidental exposures in the school lunchroom. And that you have to, as I said, you have to eat your enemies. So my, my, my line is all soap is bad, some are less mm -hmm. bad. And the point is that it's the detergent activity. And yes, some soaps tend to be more harsh, and we have these more gentle soap, but I think parents think, oh, I use Dove soap, so it's okay. No, with, particularly with eggs, but that's where it's really obvious. I tell parents, don't scrub the areas with eczema because that will, again, damage the barrier function, cause the skin to dry out and worsen. And the emollients that we can use you know, don't replace the natural oils in the skin and can't repair it. So, and another little trick I tell them is like when they take their bath, don't soap them up at the beginning because then they sit in soapy water because every child wants to play for an hour. You wait mm -hmm. till they're finished and then we'll, quote, wash the dirty places, the stinky places and get them out of that soap. So reduce the overall our use of detergents and soaps I saw a parent in the clinic the other day, a child had severe eczema in their diaper area and they were using their baby wipes and I didn't realize it. And I looked on the label and it had polysorbate 80, which is something I use in the laboratory, but it's a detergent and it's in everything. So a lot of these detergents end up in our food source and medications because they have sort of, uh, they keep things from clumping up and keep them into a nice smooth, um, and keep them in, in solution. So medications often precipitate, so it keeps them in solution. So it is ubiquitous in our food supply, our medication supply, and everything we're using at home. And I, I think the alarm must, you know, should be sounded that we need to reduce our use of a lot of these detergents and things that might actually damage the, the our barrier function and lead to more atopic diseases. And avoid that detergent you just mentioned in particular? Like, should we be reading the the ingredients? Yeah, no, baby wipes should just be water. <laughs> Paper towel and water. You really don't need special baby wipes with all kinds of uh, detergents and things in them. What about for, I know you, when we had talked before, you were talking about um, even dishwashing detergent. So it's we should yeah, try to there's limit enough that residual. This uh, was listening to a lecture and they would take dishes that had already been washed and just rinse out the leftover detergent on the dishes and use that in their experiments. And it's like diluted 20,000 times. And yet they would still see damage to the, these are cultured epithelial cells. So that's sort of a in vitro experiment it tells us that even in tiny, tiny quantities, um, a small amount of detergent can cause some damage. For everyone, or is this just for, yes. for kids with eczema in particular, for everyone? Well, it, it's more pronounced in people with eczema or, you know, have a tendency because again, the genetic revolution has taught us that the kids with eczema most likely have some changes in the genes that make them a bit more susceptible to this epithelial damage. So but in general, I think we, we could all just not be so clean. <laughs> Which, how do, how do we process this, Dr. Brooks, especially after the pandemic and, and right, no, with the, all the viruses the pandemic, going around? The pandemic absolutely exacerbated that. Everyone's hand sanitizing constantly. And, you know, there's an old right. psychiatric syndrome with excessive hand washing where they get eczema on their hands. You can you can scrub yourself into eczema. So 
during the pandemic, I saw quite a few people that have were having problems because of all the hand sanitizer and the hand washing and you know overuse of these soaps. And of course, you know, we we're trying to avoid getting COVID. And that, that's reasonable. I would tell people like, we'll get some, you know, gloves, some nitrile gloves. And if you're sanitizing your hands frequently, just leave the gloves on and re-sanitize your gloves. I have what some of our uh, doctors will do that because they're they don't want to get all that alcohol on their hands. And some people are very sensitive to the drying effects of alcohol. With that, I mean, some of our listeners probably wash their hands more than 30 times a day. Oh, yeah. Would you recommend? I, I'm the same way. And so this hand sanitizer is great because it's a lot quicker. But um, if you're sensitive to that, then, like I said, you can just put gloves on and sanitize the gloves in between patients. And what would you recommend regarding for all of us? How often should we be running our dishwasher or... Now my kids are bugging me since we talked last. They're like, Mom, why aren't we running the dishwasher anymore? Or why are we just washing these? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give a practical example. You had a piece of toast on a plate. And, you know, mm-hmm. rinse it off in hot water and put it back on, on the rack. Mm-hmm. You don't need soap to touch your dishes every single time. You have to make a value. Done. If, you're, if you're cutting up meat or chicken... Absolutely, you need to be compulsive about cleaning and sanitizing because of the risk of the E. coli and the salmonella, et cetera. So we have to kind of get a little more savvy with um, how we wash our dishes and how often we feel like we need to put them on in soap or put them in the dishwasher with soap. Is soap really necessary for that particular dish? My pet peeve is that Members of my family shall remain unnamed. Pile them in the sink where they get even the cleanest of dishes get all mucky in the sink because all the junk goes in there. Then you have to wash them, right? So if you wash them individually, um, if you're the only one drinking from a glass or a cup of coffee, I don't think I've washed my coffee cup in, you know, ever. (laughs) And I just keep drinking coffee from it. And even those Uh studies show, yeah, they can show bacteria in those cups. I'm pretty sure I haven't gotten sick from it, but that's an extreme example. But I think just our our, our concept of cleanliness and sterility is we need to kind of, you know, modulate it a little bit. And what about when we're showering or bathing? You have advice there. We don't need soap all the time. Well, there's certain parts of our bodies that need soap. <laughs> Not to be too yes. detailed, but, you know, there's areas that never really get dirty, you know, um, and those extensor surfaces of the arms and legs are areas that get eczema. And do you really need to scrub them all the time? How dirty did they get? Were you mucking around in the garden and covered in mud? Probably not. And uh, often a water bath is is plenty good for most areas. Like I said, though, um, I have to wash my hair because I'm one of those oily people. <laughs> Not, again, not to get too too much detail, but there's some areas that do need to be washed with soap pretty regularly. And also, bottom line, it's good to get dirty. It's good for our kids to be playing out in the mud or for us to get out and, and do the gardening, ride the horse, muck the stalls. <laughs> I feel like that's true. You know, um, exposure to the natural environment and the microorganism and dirt. So unfortunately, we have this sort of culture of dirty is bad. But, you know, there's an old wives tale about a spoonful of dirt a day, you know, and um, I I think that one. (laughs) um, So that has some value and children who are raised with animals, with pets, particularly dogs tend to have less allergy down the road. And the theory is that they're exposed to sort of the outdoor environment, you know, that the dogs drag in. And um, as one scientist said, dogs don't wipe. So we get exposed to all those microorganisms that tend to be symbiotic with us. So we've been raised with our animals, you know, for thousands of years. And our immune system has evolved to have symbiotic relationship with the microbiome. And that's why all this focus on the microbiome 
seems to be pointing us directions that we didn't think about before. So a little dirt is not bad. Now, unfortunately, in our current um, society, you may have dirt around an old house that's, that's impregnated with lead from old lead paint. And people like to use a lot of poison in their yard to make them pretty. And, um, and so those are problems. You know, I always tell people universal pest control is not using poisons, but other methods to try to rid yourself of pests. And I think the same is in your garden or your yard. I, you know, spraying weed killer and things of that nature, you know, they're poisons or pesticides, you know, spraying pesticides in your home are poisons. And high enough amount of that will cause obvious problems. We really don't fully understand the impact of pesticides in very low concentrations chronically. But I read one paper that said, if you don't buy organic food, you can measure pesticides in your children's bloodstream readily. If you switch them to an organic diet, those disappear. It may not be in a concentration high enough to really make a difference because no one's shown any true ben medical benefit of organic foods. That said, and maybe it's more religious with me, I'd prefer not to have pesticides in my children's bloodstream, just at face yes. value. But I can't tell you that that's going to cure. The switching to more expensive, you know, they are more expensive organic foods. I can't guarantee it's going to uh, cure your child's ailments. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.